0: This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU, I'm Lucy May. It's Friday and that means it's time for our weekly news review. Today, we're gonna start with news from the Kentucky's Capitol with legislation that would curb the governor's pardoning power and a bill that would change sick leave pay for retiring teachers. Then we'll talk about big changes in Hamilton City government and what the future holds for the Tri-County Mall site. And later in the hour, we'll hear about a local artist whose murals are being lost to redevelopment. We've got a lot to talk about today, and joining me to get us started is Kentucky Lantern reporter McKenna Horsley. Welcome back, McKenna. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always great to have you here. So I mentioned this bill that would limit Kentucky governor's power to issue pardons. It's been working its way through the state Senate. What would the bill do?
1: Yes. So Senate Bill 126, um, which is sponsored by Republican Senator Chris McDaniel of Ryland Heights, would limit propose it would propose a constitutional amendment to suspend the governor's power to issue pardons or sentence commutations from 30 days before a gubernatorial election until the fifth Tuesday after the election, which here in Kentucky is when governors are inaugurated. Um, this is in response to former Republican Governor Matt Bevin issuing a flurry of pardons after he lost his reelection bid in 2019. Um, many of those. Um, pardons came under fire because they included um, they were related to crimes of people who had committed rape murder and child abuse Um, senator mcdaniel after hearing of someone who had committed who was convicted of heinous crimes um, he decided to file this bill recently Um, that person did not Um, They were eligible for parole, but they were not granted that parole recently. So that's a bit of history where this bill is coming from. Mm
0: -hmm. And Senator McDaniel, um, I I believe he said that this legislation is about justice and about transparency. Tell us a little bit more about his arguments in favor of this.
1: Yes. um, So kind of being um, after hearing that initial story, uh, McDaniel has made a floor speech on the Senate last month, and as well as when this bill got a committee hearing in the Senate, state and local government, um, he told the committee members there that he thinks it's imperative to the foundational issues of justice in the Commonwealth that one individual should not be able to short-circuit the entirety of the justice system. Um, And he says that justice system is made up of frontline police officers who make that arrest, as well as the Kentucky Supreme Court um, that can be circumvented by these pardons. Um, And his time frame here is to make sure that governors who issue pardons Are held accountable by voters. Um, So around this period, um, especially after an election, if a governor issues a pardon but is on his way out of office, he's not really accountable to the voters is what McDaniel is saying.
0: I understand the Senate committee approved the bill earlier this week. Tell us about that vote.
1: Yes. So the committee is made up of both uh, mostly Republicans and a few Democrats. Um, We did see eight votes in favor of this, including um, Senator Denise Harper Angel, a Democratic from Louisville. She joined the seven other Republicans on the committee in voting for the bill. Um, another Louisville Democrat, Senator Cassie Chambers Armstrong, passed on voting. Um, she said that she thought what Bevan did was abhorrent, but she wanted more time to speak with certain stakeholders about practical implications of the bill. Mm. Um, now, also something to note is because this is a constitutional amendment, um, if it passes through the General Assembly this session, it will not be automatically enacted, it has to be decided on by Kentucky voters. So there's a few constitutional amendments in session um, right now that are being considered, including another one from McDaniel um, that would propose moving Kentucky elections to presidential years. Um, Right now we have off-year elections um, for um, our executive branch. So the competition, I think, for this bill will be how many constitutional amendments come out of this session and how many make it to the ballot to voters.
0: How soon could this be on the ballot if it does make it through the session?
1: Um, depending on what uh, what other constitutional amendments will come through, um, it will it will likely be this year. And. Mm. Um, But some are worried that if there are so many constitutional amendments on the ballot, um, I think there's actually a limit of four. Um, It could lead to a really long ballot for the voters. Um, But this bill also hasn't gotten a full floor vote in the Senate yet. So it has to make that hurdle. Um, And the other um, constitutional amendment I mentioned from McDaniel has already received that Senate vote. So there's Senate approval on that one. Um, so we'll likely see this continue through the Senate, and then the House will decide if it wants to take this one up as well. You mentioned that
0: uh, state senator from Louisville who who abstained and said, hey, I want to look into this a little bit more. Is there more to look at with this? And I guess I wondered, does the fact that Governor Bashir, the current governor, is a Democrat, does that factor into this at all?
1: I think in a way, um, but... I think this is kind of part of a larger trend we're seeing from this legislature right now um, in wanting to limit powers from the executive branch. Um, you know, this one might be something that is, um, may it might get more support from both Republicans and Democrats because it's related to an unpopular Republican governor who, is no longer in office. Um, so I think that's why you're seeing some bipartisan support here. But we're also seeing things like um, powers being taken away from the executive branch, especially in terms of education that we're seeing Democrats push back against. Um, Democrats in the legislature are the minority party. So that's why a lot of this legislation is being pushed through through by Republicans. Hmm. Well, there was also action in the Senate this week on
0: Senate Bill 4, which relates to how Kentucky teachers are paid for sick leave when they retire. Tell us about that bill and what it would do.
1: Yes. So Senate Bill 4 um, is a Republican-backed measure um, which would change how teachers are paid for accumulative sick leave when they retire. Um, so, right now, teachers are paid for, I believe, about 30% of their sick leave that they have accumulated throughout their career once they retire. Now, if this bill is enacted, it would limit the payment for unused sick leave days gained after June 30th of this, of this year to no more than 10 days per school year. Um, after July 1st of this year, all public school districts would annually be have to report sick leave balances to the teacher retirement system, which is the, our state retirement system um, for educators here in Kentucky. Um, and, you know, some Republicans argued that this was necessary to ensure that TRS can continue to pay retired teachers in the future, but Democrats argued that the change would lead to more teachers using their sick time throughout the school year instead of losing it.
0: Explain the concerns around the Kentucky teachers' retirement system. Is the system
1: in financial trouble? Um, It's something that Republican, especially Republican Senate leaders, are very worried about, Um, you know, if... It's like last year, the bill sponsor, um, Senator Jimmy Higdon, Higdon said that TRS had a negative cash flow of about $9 million. Um, So the idea behind Senate Bill 4 is to bring solvency to this system and ensure that there's money in the bank for future teachers who will be retiring.
0: Is it clear how much money the bill would really save the system if this were to become law?
1: Um, TRS did send um a letter about the physical impact um to the legislative research commission. And they said that it would have a slight impact on savings, as almost all districts do currently provide no more than 10 sick sick leave days for teachers. Um, some administrators do have a different set of sick days available to them. Um and it said that the approximate current cost of sick leave for retirement calculation purposes is about 1.24% of payroll, which is about $52 million per year. Hmm.
0: What has teacher response been to this bill? Have you heard much from teachers about this idea?
1: Yeah, we did hear from some teachers in committee about this bill, um, and it's kind of going back to what the Democrats' argument was on the floor. Um, But teachers were concerned that by lowering the number of sick days available to accumulate, more teachers are going to want to take them rather than lose them throughout their career, meaning that more substitute teachers will be needed in schools, which is already an issue um, under the current system. Um, you know, we heard from some teachers who say that their schools do not have enough subs to cover teachers who are out of school. Um, we also heard from some teachers that it's easier to just go to school rather than plan to take the day off because when you're a teacher, you're not just planning to not come into the office. You're planning to leave behind a lesson, um, make sure your kids have everything they need, and then you're taking the day off. Um, another issue we're hearing as well is that in Kentucky, teachers currently do not have maternity leave, so they're using these sick days as maternity leave that they accumulate over time. Um, there is a companion bill kind of to this um, from Senator Lind- Lindsey Tichner, who is a Republican, um, Senate Bill 205, which would implement maternity leave, um, but that so far has just been introduced and has not received a committee hearing yet. What's next with this bill? With this bill, um, since it's gone through the Senate, um, it is going over to the House. Um, Through there, it will probably go through another House committee and then to a floor vote there. Okay. Well, I've been talking with
0: Kentucky Lantern reporter McKenna Horsley. Thanks so much for your time today, McKenna. Hope you get some rest this weekend. Yep. Thanks for having me. Up next, Hamilton's city manager is leaving his job but won't be going far. We'll discuss what the move could mean for economic development in Butler County. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. The city of Hamilton has been working to position itself for more economic development in the years ahead. And now the city manager who's been leading that charge is leaving his position. We're going to talk about where he's going and what that means for development in Hamilton and Butler County. And we're also going to get an update on the Tri-County Mall site and the big project that's been promised there. Joining me now are Journal News Senior Associate Reporter Michael Pittman. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. And WCPO9 I-Team reporter Dan Monk. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thank you, Lucy. Let's start with you, Michael. Hamilton's city manager is taking this new position with Butler County Finance Authority. What will that entail?
2: Well, that will entail basically leading the economic development for the county, um, specifically with Hamilton as well, because this is a twofold partnership in a way um by by being the ceo of the butler county finance authority uh that is also dependent on the city of hamilton creating what's called a uh, the hamilton development agency or development finance agency um which is essentially like a port authority um they have similar powers and similar abilities um because first they were going to just create this Hamilton DFA. Uh, then after meeting with county commissioners and the, and the finance agency authority, uh, they wanted Joshua Smith to lead that agency. And this Hamilton DFA would kind of be under the, the uh, underneath or uh, under the umbrella of the Butler County uh, agency. Hmm. Um. This this would be an, this would be just a so, solid focus for economic development, and that's what Joshua Smith is known for.
0: And tell us a little bit more about this um, city organization that's kind of like a port authority and Butler County mm-hmm. Finance Authority. What will they be working to do? Are they kind of going to be laser focused on increasing economic development?
2: Yeah, they'll be laser focused on on business in Hamilton. Um, so. The, the Hamiltons proposed port authority and development development finance agency would work complementary with the city's current economic development staff. Um, the port has a different has different economic development tools that can be used, and the DFA would have um, would be able to help developers fill gaps in financing needs for various projects.
0: And tell us about some of the big projects that Joshua Smith has really uh, spearheaded in the in his time as city manager, and, and how that relates so closely to this new job.
2: Well, all you really got to do is look around Hamilton. Um, every major entity, uh, big business entity that's been there for the last decade and a half, has been as a result of what Joshua Smith has been able to do. Eighty Acres is a prime example. They had. Um, in a way recruited uh 80 acres to move to relocate to Hamilton. Uh, they vacated the seventh floor of <laughs> the city did of the of, the, of these uh, of city Hall and that is where 80 acres the uh, vertical farming company is headquartered uh Joshua Smith literally gave up his corner office on the seventh floor to Mike Zelkin, <laughs> the, the CEO of 80 acres. Um, and that partnership has flourished um, with between the city and, and 80 Acres, to where 80 Acres is one of the top vertical farming companies
0: in the world. What will his priorities be in the new job, and, and how do you think that work could have an impact on Hamilton?
2: I mean, as we said before, it's laser focused on economic development, and he he would be his his job would be. Recruiting businesses to Butler County um, as the Butler County um, our CEO of the Butler County Finance Agency, and then he would oversee, uh, kind of strategically oversee for the for the time being, the Hamilton DFA, who would have who would hire somebody uh, to do the day to day operations. But that H that the HDFA was really given instant credibility. Um, to do this type of work with all the, because he did a lot of fundraising, um, First Financial Bank, Miami University, Kettering Health, the Hamilton Community Foundation, all these big names in Butler County uh, and the region gave money to help start this, the uh, the Hamilton uh, DFA. Um, and he would, for example, Beckett Paper. I mean, that's a project that's really underway but using that as a as a as an example that's a mixed use project uh to redevelop the former beckett paper mill um and and they would really benefit from a city port authority um because right now the plans for that former paper mill would transform a facility designed that was really designated for demolition um into a 250 apartment complex with 80 to It'd be like an 80 to 90 million dollar uh project um but they would be able to to take some of these old industrial properties that Hamilton has a lot of um and reinvent them um they would be able to attract them I mean uh the uh champion paper mill is a prime example it was fervy enough I mean he that, that's that is another quintessential Joshua Smith project where they that that building should have been torn down but they were able to get somebody in to spend the money spend the time and it is attracting tens of thousands of people over the summer weekends
0: wow sounds like a lot of big expectations for joshua smith in this new role uh, yeah yeah there there are yeah Well, Dan, let's talk about uh, economic development in another part of the region. What's the status of Tri-County Mall? There was a time, it's been years ago, when it was kind of an upscale rival to Kenwood Town Center. How many businesses are still open there?
3: Exactly one. Uh, There's a Mexican restaurant that um, has won a reprieve. They were supposed to be moving out by now, but uh, I think they're allowed to stay in that site until Mother's Day. And so... Inside the mall itself, that's the only tenant that remains.
0: Wow. And what's this billion-dollar makeover that's been proposed for the mall and the site?
3: Well, this is a Texas developer. His name is Michael Van Huss, and he came to town uh, with this plan to convert the mall into an upscale, Mm amenities-rich housing community. A lot of apartments um, and a lot of amenities, like a, a a public park, a dog park, uh, an amphitheater where concerts could take place. They had a plan for a big walking trail on the site. And um, what's happened is that uh, interest rates have gone up and the developer was unable to, uh, to, to make things work with the financing plan he had in place way back at the beginning of this project in late 2021.
0: What kind of local financing was this developer counting on?
3: Well, he was counting on a $200 million tax increment financing deal uh, that Springdale agreed to, the Princeton uh, School District agreed to it, and um, it kind of got stuck in the mud because um, he was hoping to use that project in, a, in one way, and the city was expecting him to use it in another way, and um, they ended up not issuing bonds. Uh, because they were concerned that uh, he was going to be using that money essentially to pay off his the $28 million that he borrowed to help him acquire the property instead of building new real estate. And if you know how tax income and financing deals are supposed to work, you collect future revenue on real estate improvements. And without the real estate improvements, the city was concerned um, that there wouldn't be. Uh, future tax revenue flowing, mm-hmm. unless this guy got started uh, quickly on, on building uh, properties that would that would pay payments in lieu of taxes.
0: How does this developer say he could still make this work?
3: He's talking to the lender, uh, which, uh, by the way, uh, forced him out of the property. He no longer has control of this property. And the lender is a Utah company by the name of Reef Private Credit, LLC, and um, they uh, secured a uh, receivership for the property. A uh, commercial real estate firm is now managing that property, but Michael Van Hus is trying to negotiate a settlement with them that could involve bringing a new developer into the project, uh, who I think would be the controlling developer. Uh, but you know, he's he's trying to maintain as much control as he can. He's trying to do the original vision that he had for this property. Um, but he says he he is talking to a, to another developer who is a well-known developer in Ohio that does mixed use projects, wouldn't name that person. And um, so we'll have to see whether uh, that settlement pans out, whether Michael Van Hels uh, stays involved and how much that project will look like the pretty pictures uh, that were presented uh, back in twenty two and uh, twenty twenty three
0: is the city still interested in in seeing something like this happen?
3: Yeah, the city says it's willing to work with anybody that can um, that can develop the site into uh, a, a productive mixed use project. They want to see um, homeowners or rather renters or dwellers on the site mm-hmm. and they want to see uh, a mixture of uses that could include anything from uh, apartments to hotel, to office um, and they just want to see a productive use. And um, originally the reason they were interested in helping to finance this project was Springdale, like many cities uh, was losing office workers um, because a lot of people are working from home. So their strategy here was to invest in a developer who would bring new taxpayers to Springdale by having them live there instead of work there. And um, I, I think that was the bet they were making, you know, back in 2021. Nobody expected interest rates to rise the way they did, and um, you know there might be other reasons why this project uh, hasn't advanced. But um, I think all the parties involved believe that that is the big one that interest rates locked up the commercial lending markets, and this developer was unable to refinance his uh, acquisition loan unable to get a construction loan, and just unable to um, to start the project the way he hoped he would.
0: You mentioned those pretty pictures. What kind of changes could be made to the original concept? Is is that clear at all?
3: Um, it's not entirely clear. Van um, Huss says the new developer is interested in a lot of the uses that uh, he was proposing for the site. He doubts that the walking trails will be part of the uh the the next version. And um, he does say that there are two hotels interested in the site. There are two grocery chains interested in the site. And there are housing developers who are interested in doing apartments there. Although what all of that will look like, I don't think he knows. I don't think anybody knows at this point.
0: Well, Dan, while I've got you on the program, I have to talk to you about your Dirty Dining report. Um, You've been examining the region's restaurant inspections for for many years now. This year's report, or this most recent report, focused on food temperatures. Talk about why the proper temperatures are so important.
3: Well, um, that's because... uh bad things happen to food that gets uh, (laughs) between the range of, I think it's 40 degrees and 130 degrees. And uh, according to the US Centers for Disease Control, there are 48 million cases of foodborne illness each year that cause 128,000 hospitalizations and 3000 deaths. And uh, the CDC revealed last May that 10% of those problems were caused by improper cooling of hot food while 6% came from improper amounts of time and temperature applied during the, the cooking process.
0: How many restaurants got cited by health inspectors for violating these rules that are related to food temperatures in the, the second half of last year, which I, I believe was the focus of your reporting?
3: Yeah. Um, I don't recall the exact number, but I do know that in 2019, when we did this a, a similar analysis, we counted more than 37% of local restaurants that had at least one citation related food temperatures and that number dropped actually to 24% in the first half of 2023 and then 23% in the last uh 6 months um i think of the of the restaurants we had something like 20 20 plus restaurants closed and fewer than 10 of them were closed uh after violations uh, that related to to food temperature
0: and you're looking at rest uh, at records for how many restaurants i can't remember is it hundreds or thousands i mean there are a it's lot thousands of, restaurants. of
3: restaurants yeah i think it was like uh close to six thousand restaurants in this in this sort of data this is a uh, bunch of data that we got for the second half of uh, uh 2023.
0: Mm. so how safe are restaurants generally
3: pretty safe Um, One point that the um, that the National Restaurant Association makes is that this is probably one of the most regulated industries in the country. Very few industries where you get at least two visits a year from somebody who's up in your business, you know, looking at everything you do, making sure your employees are washing your hands and and they actually walk into restaurants with a thermometer and they open the refrigerator and they test the temperature of the chicken in that refrigerator. So, uh, you know, restaurants are scrutinized for sure, Uh, but, you know, it it only takes one problem to uh, create a foodborne illness. And certainly some of the restaurants that had citations for uh, food temperature violations also had complaints for foodborne illness. Not all of them were uh, sustained. Not all of them were proven. Um, but you know, that combination of uh, a restaurant has food uh, vi- uh, violations for for temperature related problems, and then a customer, you know, at about the same time is uh, complaining about foodborne illness. That's not a good combination,
0: yeah, well, and you you mentioned this temperature range where there can be problems. I think in your um reporting, you called it the danger zone and talked yes. with restaurant operators about that. What are some of the ways restaurants are avoiding that danger zone and really trying to make sure their, you know, the, the temperatures of their food are, are where they need to be?
3: We, walked, uh, we talked to one um, restaurant owner who uh, bought uh, a device that he puts in all of his refrigerators. It's called a Govi, and it records the temperature, keeps a log of those temperatures, So not only can he uh, be alerted, anytime a temperature falls uh, above or rises above that 40 degree, you're supposed to store food at 40 degrees or lower. And anytime the temperature rises above, he gets a notice on his phone, you know, that his refrigerator is out of whack. And so um, that's one way that they're, they're fighting. And other restaurants, um, just make sure that they have uh, good maintenance on their uh, refrigeration units. There's one guy who does who actually takes a toothbrush and, and scrapes out the uh, coils on, at the bottom of his uh, of his of his refrigerator. Wow, I want that and, guy uh, coming
0: to my house.
3: I know it, it's it was a pretty clean uh, refrigerator. I gotta give him credit for that. but it is a new restroom in oh. Sailor Park. Okay. And he says that the HVAC people that come into his restaurant joke with him because they're coming in trying to get business. And they're like, if you're doing that, we, we, we have no way to help you.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> How many restaurants closed after bad inspections in the second half of last year?
3: Well, what was the number? Uh, Twenty-seven closed after mm-hmm. bad inspections in the second half of uh, 2023.
0: Okay. And were some of those closures permanent? Are they mostly temporary? I know a closure can be, you know, for a few hours or a few days or or forever. I think
3: some of them uh, were permanent. uh, But of course, we had a lot of restaurants that closed, uh, not necessarily for bad inspections, but, you know, it's been a tough time to be in the restaurant business. So uh, the ones that had yet to reopen. It's not clear whether it was a bad inspection that caused that. Uh, but yes, some of the peop- some of the restaurants on our list are no longer open. Hmm.
0: How many departments, different health departments, do you get records from for these um, examinations, these analyses that you do with, with your Dirty Dining project?
3: Um, I think it's uh, about, close to a dozen now. We get wow. every restaurant. In, well, we get Hamilton, Butler, Warren. In Claremont counties. And we get four counties in Northern Kentucky from the one uh, health district that uh, polices that area. And then we also get the cities of uh, Sharonville, Middletown, I think Springdale is in our list. Uh, Cincinnati. And the city of Cincinnati. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. So I know, you know, you and I go way back. We've talked about this before, but has all this reporting changed your approach to eating out? Do you look at these inspections before you go out to eat?
3: Um, I I have looked at the inspections before I've gone out to eat. I've also made it a point of eating in the restaurants with high numbers of violations just to see what the experience is like. Um, so no, I don't think it really has impacted my uh, dining choices.
0: Have you ever gotten sick when you go to eat at these restaurants that have high numbers of violations?
3: Uh no. I have gotten sick at a restaurant. <laughs> but I I didn't know that restaurant had I I didn't know their violation count before I went or after.
0: Okay. Didn't want to. Go.
3: Yeah. You're
0: you're very strong though. That could be part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. More <laughs> stubborn. Yeah, there you
3: go. Or hungry. I think it's basically that I'm hungry.
0: Okay, fair enough. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: Well, I've been talking with Journal News Senior Associate Reporter Michael Pittman and WCPO9 iTeam reporter Dan Monk. Thank you both so much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Lucy. Thank you very much, Lucy.
0: Up next, a local artist's murals are being lost to redevelopment. We'll hear what sets his work apart. This is Cincinnati Edition.
3: Y'all gonna paint over me too? You know, that's how I feel. You know, it's like they've just taken me off the map.
0: His larger-than-life pop icon set the backdrop for Over the Rhine and other neighborhoods in the 90s and early 2000s. But redevelopment is erasing a local artist's body of work. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Murals in Cincinnati's over the Rhine and West End neighborhoods that captured the people and spirit of those communities are disappearing. Joining me now to talk about the artists behind those murals and what the community is losing as they go away is WVXU General Assignment Reporter, Nick Swartzell. Welcome back, Nick.
4: Hey, Lucy. How's it going?
0: It's going all right. How are you? I'm great. Well, thank you for spending time with us today. Yeah. Really enjoyed this story. Tell us about William Rankins Jr. and some of his murals that people might have seen around Cincinnati.
4: Yeah. So uh, William Rankins Jr., if you've spent any time in downtown, uh, you know, over the Rhine, West End, you've probably seen his work. He was responsible for the famous OTR RoboCop um, and uh, the mural on Liberty Street that had Steve Urkel and an enormous hoagie and a giant dog. Uh, and probably the most uh, vi- like visible one for, for a number of years was uh, the portrait of Barack Obama on Liberty Street in the West End over Ollie's trolley. Uh, pretty big. You could see it from pretty far away. Uh, those murals have slowly been going away. Uh, the Obama one is no longer... There, but there are some others at Ollie's Trolley that are really wonderful, and those are some of the last left of his murals.
0: What's been happening to those murals?
4: It's a number of different things with the uh, with the Obama mural. Um, the owner of Ollie's Trolley, Marvin Smith, uh, just couldn't really. Uh, repair the mural because the wall behind it was deteriorating and he had to paint over it. And he, he kind of told me like, uh, you know, like it just got to a place where it was deteriorating so badly. It felt disrespectful to keep it up. And I think something important to mention is that, uh, uh, Rankin's is now uh, blind, so he can't touch it up himself. And uh, so that was one thing that happened. In other cases, uh, people buy the buildings that the murals are on. They want to start a new business or put something new there. And so they paint over it. In other cases, uh, the most recent one we lost was uh, Liberty Tire, which is across from Ollie's Trolley. Uh, there were several murals on that building. And that building was torn down to, for redevelopment to make way for uh, some, something new.
0: Yeah. What does Mr. Rankins think about all this?
4: He's, you know, uh, as you might imagine, not happy that his murals are going away. I think to a certain degree he understands that, you know, the passage of time is going to claim some of them. But, uh, you know, to, to lose almost all of your body of work, something you've been known for for, you know, decades now, uh, is really hard for him. And, you know, I think compounded by that, the fact that he uh, can't really see that well anymore um, and it, it, it's, you know, it feels like he's losing his legacy. Mm.
0: What did his murals represent about these neighborhoods when he painted them? You mentioned that there were some that were around. It's, it felt like forever. I know it wasn't forever. But what did they really mean to the neighborhoods and communities?
4: Yeah. So one of the really, I think, noteworthy things about his murals is that in, in addition to including these sort of larger-than-life figures, you know, a three-story Barack Obama, RoboCop, Urkel, you know, and and other sort of pop culture or political icons, local political icons too, like Mayor Mark Mallory. um They included like everyday folks from the neighborhood. He would either people he knew or people that like his family knew or somebody that he had some connection with. He'd get photos of them and paint them into these murals. You have whole families from the West End in, in some of these murals. Uh, whole families from over the Rhine in some of these murals. There's memorials to people in some of uh, his work. And, uh, you know, I think that putting those two together uh, really did something for people in the community. Uh, You know, Rankin said, I like making people feel good. I like people having a sense of pride, you know, like they can drive by and see the mural and point out to the person with them. Hey, that's me. You know, like um, Maria Cita Reader, who's a, a local art educator and, and arts writer, she talked about the importance of having, you know, your image right next to somebody really important. Um, and, and kind of like that level playing field of like, hey, you're on the same level as <laughs> RoboCop, you know, like, <laughs> or or even Obama, you know, like that's, in, you know, it's it's a really important thing for people in a community to see, especially a community that hasn't experienced a lot of investment, uh, you know, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, you know, up until the past decade or so. And so, you know, I think, it it was a way a homegrown way to like create pride in the neighborhood
0: tell us more about how these neighborhoods have changed i mean you mentioned there are lots of different reasons some of these murals have gone away some some of them related to the buildings being knocked down or uh, how have the neighborhoods changed over over time
4: yeah i mean so if you again if you spent any time in cincinnati and and you're familiar with these murals I may not need to tell you this, but, you know, over the Rhine has seen, you know, a lot of redevelopment over the past decade, decade and a half, Um, you know, and and there's all kinds of different points of view about that. And there's all different nuance in that in terms of what's good about it, what's not good about it. But, you know, I think one thing that, you know, we've seen in terms of just quantifying it is, uh, you know, from 2010 to 2020, there's some census data that suggests the neighborhood lost more than 40% of its black population. And, uh, you know, we don't have that same hard data for the West End because uh, redevelopment has been, you know, a little bit more delayed there. But uh, we're seeing, you know, changes there too. And I think some of those changes people in the community are excited about. Some of them are, uh, you know, more difficult. Uh, Rents rise. Um, The neighborhood feels unfamiliar perhaps because all these new restaurants and businesses aren't necessarily – Catering to you as a person who's lived in the neighborhood for 30 years. So there's a lot of change that has happened and is still happening. Uh, and I think now the focus has moved toward the West End, and that, that change is really marching along. And that's where the last of Rankin's murals are. Mm-hmm.
0: Cincinnati has so many murals, especially in Over the Rhine. Um, How are they different from the ones that Mr. Rankin's painted?
4: Yeah, so this is an interesting thing to think about, I I think, because uh, we are a mural city. We're we're known nationally and internationally for our, our mural scene. And uh, those murals are, are beautiful. They're, they're all over, you know, like if you think about it's almost like the city has gotten a bunch of cool tattoos or something, <laughs> you know, and, and they're great. And, and they have meaning And um, a lot of the nonprofits in town who do these murals. I'm thinking specifically of uh, artworks. They do engage the community and they do try to get local folks involved in the creation of those murals, and they feature uh, local icons, and, you know, in some cases, local black icons. I think the Ezra Charles mural, James Brown's not local, but he got to start here. He might as well be local. You know, those murals, uh, right in the same area that, that Rankin's painted, do represent the community in some way, right? But they're not the same as somebody who lived in that community for a long time, knew all the folks there, worked with all the folks there and portrayed just like everyday people, you know, like, you know, on the wall. I, I talked with one person who uh, his his face was on one of these murals for, for years and he just, when it, when it went away, it was a significant loss to him. It felt like this is, you know, like I already don't live in this neighborhood anymore and now – you know like this this marker is not there anymore and and i think it's just that personal connection that, that rankins was able to provide people who lived in the neighborhood that is hard to replicate and so then if we move another step forward there's there's blink which is this wonderful international mural and light show festival and you know folks are coming from all over the world to paint murals here and there's there's nothing wrong with that but it's an entirely different kind of art a different connection a different um sort of way of doing murals than what Rankin's did and I think there's there's something lost when we don't have that that William Rankin's piece alongside the international famous you know muralist
0: yeah what you mentioned that these murals are um, Mr. Rankin's legacy in many ways. What what else do they mean to him? What did he tell you about just what he feels about this work and these murals?
4: Well, again, I think it goes back to um, pride. What what I hear when I hear him talk about it is it's his his connection to these communities and um, his sort of like mark on those communities, like his way of making. A, a a mark in the world you know like and i think that's really important for any artist and you know i think he talks about when i when i talked to him he talk about like oh you know i got this one up here and i got this one up here and it was like he was creating something in the world and i think we all want to do that in some way and to do that for so many years and then to see it kind of go away it's got to be really hard
0: yeah let's talk about some of the specifics of these um murals did he tell you why he painted the robocop like holding a hamburger is there a story behind that (laughs) did he share his inspiration with you
4: yes so uh he told me that the person who hired him to paint it originally wanted a police officer and he said you know like in this community certain people might not be comfortable with that. And, you know, he's not against the police or anything like that, but he was just kind of reading the room in this part of over the Rhine at that particular time and saying, what if we did something a little different and what's a less threatening sort of like, or, or, you know, like a less divisive image we can paint. And so, um, you know, I think he was trying to be inclusive and, and, and also, you know, a little random, just like, Hey, you're going to recognize this. You're not going to know why it's here. And it's really going to draw your eye to it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you remember the first time you ever saw a Rankin's mural? Like which one it was and what you thought about it?
4: So uh, let me just say that um, I spent a lot of time in Over the Rhine and the West End as a younger lad <laughs> <I don't> know, <laughs> riding my bike or skateboarding around and they like honestly they just felt like they were always kind of there and when i think about those neighborhoods when i left town to live somewhere else when i would think about over the rhine i would think about Tina's carryout and, and the, you know, the food that was painted above it that Rankin's did, or I'd think about the Urkel mural or, and when I would come back to town, I would take pictures of them. So I would have those pictures. Uh, so the first time I saw them, I have no idea. I mean, it must've been when I was pretty young, but, uh, they have, they have basically helped create how I feel about these neighborhoods. And I'm not even, you know, like (laughs) the, the, the necessarily target audience.
0: Yeah. How did you find out who painted all of them?
4: So in uh, 2018, uh, when one of the murals on Liberty Street was going away, I did an article, and I talked to Cam Hardy, who's pictured on was pictured on that mural, and he said, "Oh yeah, you know, it was uh, this guy William Rankins Jr. who painted them." And uh, I tried and tried to get in touch with them, and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. Um, journalism fail.
2: Uh,
4: <laughs> <laughs> and so over the years, I've just like continually Googled him. Talk to people i've asked cam like a million times like hey and cam's like i don't know (laughs) but uh um i uh eventually ran across uh a a blog post um for a nonprofit that he you know it gets help from and uh somebody had written this cool little piece about him and i reached out to that person i was like hey i want to do something with with william can you get me in touch and he was able to help so Uh um so yeah that's like uh i think it's just kind of eventually worked out.
0: Yeah. A lot of of persistence. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What happened to that Cam Hardy mural? So that one, uh, again in 2018,
4: um, was painted on the side of uh, what is now a bar on Liberty and Race Street. And uh, again, it was was a combination of like, this is a new business. They kind of want to set a new tone. But also there there was maintenance that needed to be done on that wall, they said. And so um, they uh, had to paint over it. Um, But they did include work from another artist who references like there's an urkel and a robocop on the side of the wall now and the style's slightly different but it you know you can tell that's uh it's uh, a shout out yeah
0: you know? and was camp was am i is it correct that he was a little kid in that mural yes uh-huh. yeah
4: yeah and his mom knew william rankins jr I, I i guess and uh passed along a photo like hey would you paint cam on the wall and, <laughs> and I, cam has the original photo and it's dead on it's like wow. so so funny that it's exactly the same
0: yeah, yeah. Well, what, um, you know, you not only got to talk to Mr. Rankins, but you're giving him a national audience. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, so uh, uh, NPR, the, the sort of national NPR, will run a version of the feature that we did, uh, th- we think, next week, Tuesday next week uh, on All Things Considered. So that's really exciting. It's exciting for Mr. Rankins and, and, you know, for us too, I think.
0: Yeah. Did he know? Did you? Were you able to tell him, hey, this is going to get you some national you know media attention to
4: i didn't know when i was interviewing him that kind of came later uh, but i've since told him and and he's i think excited about that but he's more excited that like local people get to hear more about him he Uh, really is interested in you know continuing to be creating work locally so
0: yeah yeah, he's of the community exactly Yeah. yeah Well, this has been great fun. I've been talking with WVXU General Assignment Reporter, Nick Swartzell. Thank you so much for your time today, Nick, and for this terrific story.
4: Fun as always, Lucy. Thanks.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. Our producer is Selena Reeder. Associate producer is Asia Johnson. Technical director is Marshall Verbsky. If you miss our program live, you can subscribe to Cincinnati Edition wherever you get your podcasts. Be be sure to tune in Monday. We're going to have a regional politics show you won't want to miss. I'm Lucy May. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.